Good afternoon. My name is Harold Furch Scott Roth, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here to the Hudson Institute and the Center for the Economics of the Internet. We're very pleased today to be discussing 5G wireless and the future of that and the federal government's role with it. We're very honored to have speaking with us today the Honorable Lawrence Strickling. I call him Larry. Uh, Larry has, I think, the longest title of anyone in the federal government. He is the Assistant Secretary for Communications and Information, Department of Commerce, and Administrator, National Telecommunications and Information Administration. And if anyone can say that in one breath, they're doing very well. Um, I hope you read Larry's bio. Uh, it's on the back of the, uh, the summary here. I'm going to give you my personal bio about uh, Larry. I first met Larry at the Hudson Institute in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, oh, about 20 years ago or so, maybe 21 or 22. Um, Larry was um, uh, had a very important position as something like deputy general counsel of a very major company. And, uh, he w gave a lot of very thoughtful comments at Hudson that day. Uh, he looked like he was about 20, uh, and uh, uh, a couple of years later, we met again uh, when he became uh, the common carrier of Euro chief at the FCC. We had uh, I, one of the highlights of every week was meeting with Larry, and we would talk about what was going on. Uh, I certainly. Uh, learned a lot. I always came out of those meetings uh, uh, feeling as if I've learned a lot, which I had. Um, and he has gone on to bigger and better things. And uh, for the past eight years, I don't know that there are many folks in government who have uh, had uh, your tenure and uh, just uh, a great string of successes at NTIA. Uh, we're very honored to have you here with us today and look forward to your comments. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Harold, for that uh, very personal introduction. I'd forgotten about that Hudson event, but you're right. That was uh, quite some time ago. But I want to thank you for and hosting the event today and thank the Hudson Institute for allowing us to use this nice new facility. Um, and Harold, I'd like to especially thank you for your work on the Commerce Spectrum Management Advisory Committee and for your contributions on spectrum policy over the past several years. I think you are finishing up, what, about seven or eight years with the CSMAC. And uh, um, so you've been there about as long as I've been at NTIA. So again, thank you for your participation and contributions to that um, effort. It's been a very important one for us as we try to figure out how to solve the ongoing spectrum challenges we face here in, in this country. So our focus today is going to be on spectrum policy, but I thought we ought to explore it in the larger context of technology policy. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the Obama administration has been as engaged or more engaged on technology policy than any of its predecessors. This is not just because President Obama has a personal interest in technology, which of course he does, but rather it reflects the recognition that the competitiveness of our country depends on having sound technology policies that support investment and innovation. When 
The president was first elected in 2008. E-commerce made up uh, nearly 4% of U.S. retail sales. Today, that number has increased 50%, at least, up to 6%. In 2014, the United States exported roughly $400 billion in information and communities technology, communications technology-enabled services. That accounted for more than half of U.S. services exports. And I think we see today that virtually all industry sectors, from manufacturing to agriculture to financial services, have benefited from the adoption of digital technologies, applications, and services. And I think today tech policy is now intrinsically and irrevocably linked to our country's overall economic prosperity. At the department, we've done a lot of work in the last four years under Secretary Pritzker's leadership on what we've called digital economy work. And I think the one conclusion we're reaching as we uh, approach the end of our term here is that the digital economy is the economy. There's really no difference any longer. At NTIA, we've spent the last eight years focused on many of the key building blocks that support the digital economy. We've developed and managed the Recovery Act broadband grants, which added over 117,000 miles of fiber in unserved and underserved areas across the country. Uh, we've convened multi-stakeholder processes to address key cybersecurity and privacy challenges and worked to ensure the free flow of inf data across borders. And we have provided key support to the Commerce Department's Digital Economy Board of Advisors, which has been examining ways to advance economic growth and opportunity in the digital age. Just yesterday, this panel of private sector experts delivered its first set of recommendations identifying key actions the department can take to support the digital economy and encourage growth and increasing opportunity. Today, though, I will focus on an important driver of our digital infrastructure, wireless connectivity. Um, we've seen phenomenal growth in the use of wireless gadgets in the last decade, from smartphones to tablets to electronic fitness trackers. Um, in 2011, only 27% of Americans reported using a smartphone. And in just four years, this number has doubled, while the number of Americans who use multiple wireless devices has also increased dramatically. Uh, but these statistics tell only part of the story of the past eight years. CTIA reports that the amount of data traveling across U.S. wireless networks has skyrocketed from approximately 191 billion megabytes in 2009 to more than 10 trillion megabytes in 2016. And all of this, of course, is before we even look to see the beginning of 5G. So continued growth and innovation in this wireless sector will hinge in large part on the successful introduction of 5G networks and our ability to deliver the spectrum needed to power this and other next generation technologies. And this administration recognized this spectrum challenge from the start. And we understood it to be a complicated problem because we needed to meet the growing spectrum needs, not just of the commercial sector, but also of government agencies. And so to address this challenge, the president tasked NTIA in 2010 to work with the FCC to make 500 megahertz of additional federal and non-federal spectrum available for wireless broadband within 10 years, while also ensuring that federal agencies could meet their spectrum-driven missions. So to meet the president's goal, we partnered with the FCC and the relevant federal agencies to develop a 10-year plan to achieve or exceed the target. 
we established a fast-track process to examine the most promising bands on an expedited basis. And under that, we identified 115 megahertz of spectrum that could be made available for wireless broadband within five years. And this included bands that became part of the very successful AWS 3 auction and the FCC's proceeding to establish the Citizens Broadband Radio Service in the 3.5 gigahertz band. And as we sit here today, assuming a successful outcome of the FCC's current incentive auction for the TV spectrum, we will have made more than 300 megahertz of spectrum available for wireless broadband with more in the pipeline. But just to show that the challenge is a persistent one, the goalposts keep moving. In 2015, Congress passed the Spectrum Pipeline Act and added 130 megahertz to the president's original 500 megahertz target. From the outset, it was clear to us that in repurposing spectrum, the old method of clearing spectrum of federal users and then making it available for the exclusive use of commercial providers was no longer sustainable. We had moved the easy systems, and to continue the old method of spectrum reallocation was going to cost too much money and take too long. The industry and its customers, as well as our economy, simply could not afford the cost and delay. And moreover, over the years, the critical missions performed by federal agencies required systems of greater and greater complexity and increased their needs for spectrum. And so the opportunities to find spectrum to which to relocate federal operations were dwindling rapidly. So given this landscape and considering improvements in technology, we quickly realized that we needed to focus on increasing spectrum sharing between federal and non-federal users. And while federal agencies have been sharing spectrum for many years, the commercial sector was not as familiar or comfortable with this approach. So while we knew it would take time to persuade most stakeholders that spectrum sharing was the right approach, it really was and is the only feasible path forward. Working collaboratively with the White House, the FCC, and federal agencies and industry, NTIA led this fundamental shift in how we approach spectrum management. Our work to promote and advance spectrum sharing among all users is the key to unlocking the unlimited possibilities for future spectrum use, including 5G. We've been assisted greatly in this effort by our interagency policy and plans steering group, the Commerce Spectrum Management Advisory Committee, made up of industry experts, and the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, so-called PCAST. In 2012, in a pivotal report, PCAST concluded that spectrum sharing offered a vital path forward to meeting the nation's growing demand for additional spectrum for wireless technologies. In building on his 2010 memorandum, President Obama in 2013 recognized that spectrum sharing not only would be necessary to achieve his original 500 megahertz goal, its expansion and evolution was essential to the future of spectrum management. So we began to develop a much greater environment of collaboration between industry and the federal government, as well as among federal agencies, because for sharing really to succeed, we needed greater buy-in from federal agencies, as well as more certainty around what they were being asked to do. And this was particularly essential in our work on AWS 3. In identifying the federal bands that would become part of the AWS 3 auction, which I think folks remember generated more than $40 billion, government and industry representatives collaborated in working groups under the leadership 
of our CSMAC to study and assess how commercial systems could share spectrum with the variety of government systems in the 1755 to 1780 megahertz band. More than 15 different federal agencies offering more than 10 different types of services shared this 25 megahertz segment for a range of activities, including air combat training systems, precision guided munitions, law enforcement video surveillance applications, and satellite operations. After much deliberation and study, we were able to develop transition plans to effectively move most of these federal systems out of the band over a 10-year period. And this would not have happened without two key elements, the government industry collaboration and the work on spectrum sharing. Because during the 10-year transition um, and even beyond, sharing will continue around key sites across the country. Importantly, the AWS-3 process also resulted in the planned relocation of certain military systems to the 2025-2110 band, primarily used by broadcasters who will now share it with these military systems. So we learned a lot from the AWS experience and we're applying those learnings to our current and future efforts. What became clear to us as a result of the AWS-3 work was that we needed an enduring process that can produce and evaluate a steady pipeline of spectrum to meet the increasing needs of both federal and commercial users. We also realized we needed a more permanent process to identify and prioritize bands for repurposing opportunities. We needed to be more transparent by improving the availability and quality of data around federal and non-federal spectrum use. So we developed NTIA's Spectrum Compendium to provide the public with detailed reports describing federal spectrum uses uh, in the 225 megahertz to 5 gigahertz bands. And this tool offers stakeholders a way to evaluate whether to pursue and ultimately propose sharing solutions. We're now in the process of expanding the range of bands included in the compendium, which will be particularly useful as we consider new sharing opportunities in higher bands. Meanwhile, last month, we released a report on the quantitative assessment of spectrum usage, which examined five bands totaling 960 megahertz of spectrum to determine which ones might be good candidates for potential sharing. The analysis indicates various types of sharing may be possible in some of these bands or portions of these bands and gives us a roadmap for the more detailed study that will be necessary before we will be able to recommend a band for repurposing. We also know that research and experimentation will be key to helping us determine whether to repurpose spectrum. We are expanding the capabilities of our Institute for Telecommunication Sciences in Boulder, Colorado to perform the technical work to expand sharing, including monitoring and measurements and improved propagation modeling. A key asset of ITS is its objectivity and neutrality in assessing new technologies, working with both federal and commercial stakeholders to provide scientifically sound data. As we examine whether a band can be repurposed, we take into account a number of considerations. We must first fully understand how federal agencies are using the band to meet their missions. We also need to consider the suitability of particular bands for non-federal use, including whether there are synergies with other current or pending allocations. And we also must evaluate the international considerations, such as relevant intergovernmental agreements regarding 
global spectrum allocations. But in all cases, our objective remains the same. We want to employ a detailed, rigorous set of analyses that involve all affected stakeholders to generate sound, fact-based spectrum policy decisions. In some cases, we are able to reach a conclusion that spectrum can be repurposed, but in others, the science and the reality of current uses may lead us to a different conclusion. For example, the framework developed by NTIA, the FCC, and the Defense Department for shared use of the 3.5 gigahertz band offers a particularly promising roadmap for future efforts. In this case, we needed to overcome the challenge of introducing commercial broadband systems into a band used for military radars. We knew that the intermittent nature of the radar use offered an opportunity for commercial operations, but the challenge we faced was figuring out how to avoid drawing extremely large exclusion zones to protect that intermittent use by the federal radars. We knew that doing so would limit the ability of commercial providers to fully utilize the band. So NTIA engineers took an initial critical step by collaborating with the Defense Department and the FCC on groundbreaking analysis and modeling techniques that resulted in significantly reduced geographic exclusion zones. But the overall approach to sharing in this band will go much further, incorporating the innovative use of spectrum access databases and technologies that sense wireless devices in the band to enable an increasingly dynamic sharing environment. In addition, the FCC's three-tiered access and licensing model creates a framework that maximizes the use of the band by incumbents and different classes of new users. Despite the complexity of the framework, government and industry stakeholders are making great strides as we work to put this valuable spectrum to use to increase the capacity of broadband wireless connections and ultimately to support 5G services. Most recently, our collaboration with the FCC and its Spectrum Frontiers proceeding made available approximately 11 gigahertz of spectrum in the millimeter wave range, much of it shared. This spectrum will enable innovative new services that will feature the high capacity and low latency characteristics that are the emerging hallmarks of 5G. These very high bands also open up new opportunities for spectrum sharing, unlicensed and licensed spectrum use, and dual use technologies to enable not only new commercial services, but also to satisfy critical government requirements. We've also been examining whether we can meet industry's requests for expanded unlicensed access in the five gigahertz band for Wi-Fi and other uses. For the 5.3 gigahertz band, we had to evaluate whether unlicensed devices could operate without degrading the performance of critical federal radars. Unfortunately, the methodical analysis we conducted in collaboration with federal agencies, the FCC and the industry, led us to conclude that there is no feasible path forward today to share this band. But those who have been following our efforts in this band likely are not surprised by this development, as stakeholders on all sides have known for some time that we had high hurdles to overcome. But while this may be a setback in terms of this particular band, I think it shows that our process is rigorous and that it works. It's fundamental that all stakeholders have trust and confidence that we will run a fair an objective process, and over the long run, I'm confident that this type of process will result in increased commercial access to spectrum. At the same time, we have been testing potential approaches to sharing the upper five gigahertz band 
5.8 to 5.9 between vehicle to vehicle safety communications and unlicensed uses such as Wi-Fi. NTIA is working collaboratively with the FCC, the Department of Transportation, and industry stakeholders on this important band. Overall, we have worked to ensure that we are positioned to respond to the growing commercial demand and an evolving market, and that this should guide future activity. Rapid advances in technology, including quickly developing 5G in particular, and continuously evolving business models means a number of our previous assumptions about spectrum have become outdated. For example, the commercial mobile industry for many years called for significantly more access to spectrum in the lower bands below three gigahertz. This so-called beachfront spectrum was desirable because it allowed wireless carriers to extend the coverage of their networks by enabling wireless signals to travel long distance and penetrate building walls. But as buildings' devices have become more capable, mobile networks also need to evolve to support really high bandwidth, high volume applications, such as next generation video delivery, virtual reality, and automation. And the very wide blocks of spectrum required for these services simply aren't available in the lower bands. So we've opened up mid-band spectrum in recent years, and now recent improvements in technology are allowing industry to make use of the much higher frequencies in the millimeter wave range that only a few years ago were not widely considered suitable for mobile broadband. Over the years, there's been much discussion about creating incentives for agencies to make more spectrum available for commercial use. The most effective incentive for agencies is to provide them the necessary resources they need to research alternatives to their existing uses of spectrum and then to give them the resources to upgrade to more efficient technologies. A key tool in this regard is the Spectrum Relocation Fund. We've worked with the White House and Congress to expand the authorized uses of the fund to enable agencies to conduct research and related activities that promise to increase spectrum efficiency. The fund was first established in 2004 to reimburse federal agencies for the costs associated with repurposing spectrum identified for auction by the FCC. The Congress made important and needed changes to the fund as part of the 2015 Spectrum Pipeline Act to broaden the scope of eligible expenses covered under the fund. And these efforts are beginning to bear fruit as federal agencies are developing spectrum pipeline plans for submission to a technical panel made up of representatives from NTIA, the FCC, and the White House's Office of Management and Budget for their approval. And prior to the end of this administration, I anticipate the transmittal of plans to Congress that utilize this new authority for the first time, giving federal agencies the opportunity and incentive to explore new bands while protecting mission-critical functions. As an example, the Federal Aviation Administration, in partnership with the Defense Department, the Department of Homeland Security, and NOAA, will be assessing the possibility of consolidating various radar capabilities that could result in making some portion of the 1300-1350 band available for shared use. NOAA is also submitting a proposal to study the potential of shared access to 1675-1680 megahertz band currently used for weather satellite services. While we believe agencies are making good faith efforts to meet our spectrum challenges, we know there is still more we can do to make the most effective use of federal spectrum. 
I do believe that the additional flexibility Congress authorized for the Spectrum Relocation Fund was the single most important step that could be taken in the short term, but perhaps the fund could be further strengthened in the future with additional funding and additional flexibilities, for example, by supporting research into allowing more unlicensed use in federal bans. We are not convinced that other incentive proposals put forward to date offer approaches that are likely to be successful. These proposals generally rely on market-based incentives, but federal agencies are simply unable to respond to market-based incentives the same way as commercial spectrum users. Agencies are driven by mission requirements, not profit, and they are subject to budget and statutory requirements. And in this mission-based context, agencies do not have the tools to assess economic efficiency. Moreover, for an incentive to be effective, it must influence the appropriate decision makers at the right time. But we are continuing to explore potential mechanisms that might be effective, and ultimately we hope to make enough progress that we can bring concepts forward and begin a dialogue with federal agencies and other stakeholders. The evolution to 5G and the expansion of the Internet of Things brings with them a whole new set of challenges to providing a steady stream of spectrum for a wide range of uses and applications. We're just starting to explore the spectrum policy implications of the emergence of new technologies such as drones, connected cars, and the vast array of Internet of Things connected devices. The, um, we estimate that the number of connected IoT devices will double from 15 billion in 2015 to more than 30 billion by 2020. And the FAA estimates that sales of drones for personal and commercial use could increase from two and a half million this year to as high as 7 million by 2020. 5G is expected to enable very high-speed mobile broadband, but if you are a precision manufacturer, maybe redundancy and reliability are a higher priority for you than speed. Or if you are a surgeon performing an operation on a patient in a remote location, you might also need very low latency in your mobile connection to avoid any delay. The aim of the technology and associated 5G standards is to allow for that. And numerous examples from connected vehicles to various smart city applications will have their own unique requirements. LTE, the latest wireless standard, ushered in advances in technologies that allow mobile operators to mix and match their various spectrum holdings as needed, while also offloading some of their demand onto Wi-Fi. This approach was supported by advances in network technology such as small cells, distributed antenna systems, and other innovations. 5G will incorporate these capabilities and more. In addition to supporting current spectrum bands, it will also include deployments in very high bands, such as in the millimeter wave range above 24 gigahertz, frequencies that are being made available for mobile broadband through the FCC's Spectrum Frontiers proceeding. As we prepare for the innovations that 5G will bring, we need to understand that growth in the demand for spectrum is not limited to commercial and consumer use. Just as innovations in technology have driven growth in the commercial wireless market, government agencies are finding new and better ways to more effectively deliver on their critical missions. Spectrum makes it possible for soldiers to communicate with their commanders on the battlefield and from remote locations. It helps first responders react quickly and safely in times of emergency. It ensures that NASA spacecraft can transmit important data back to Earth. It enables NOAA satellites to accurately track the weather, 
so that communities can better prepare for storms. As I conclude, let me leave you with some final thoughts about what we've learned over the last eight years, as well as some issues that I believe need some additional attention in the immediate and near term if we are to ensure that 5G and all spectrum-based technologies reach their true potential. First, there is no longer any question that spectrum sharing has to be a major part of the solution. And the only way sharing will work is by maintaining and even extending collaborative and cooperative processes and relationships that bring all affected stakeholders together. Second, as the airwaves become more congested, we need to develop and enforce minimal technical rules to protect against unauthorized harmful interference. Automated enforcement approaches make a lot of sense, but will require increased investment to develop interference analysis tools. I also believe we are going to have to finally address the performance characteristics of spectrum receivers. Otherwise, you can limit the ability to effectively use all available spectrum. And we must take advantage of new opportunities such as 5G to build enforcement tools into the technology. Third, as a nation, and really even as a global spectrum community, we must continue to invest in research and development of technologies that will help us make the most effective and efficient use of spectrum. There are pieces in place, from expanded use of the Spectrum Relocation Fund, to the Wireless Spectrum R&D Consortium, to the National Science Foundation's Advanced Wireless Research Initiative. But I hope that collectively, we will be able to do even more. Fourth, I would like to see additional focus to more accurately quantify current spectrum demand, usage, and projections of future requirements for both federal and non-federal use. Technologies and business models change rapidly, and to ensure that we keep up with these changes, we must focus on actual needs. Wireless operators appear to be concentrating on expanding capacity in a localized fashion to address the most congested part of their networks. So how will we collectively ensure that more areas get covered by the latest technologies and dead zones are minimized? How granular does coverage need to be for the emerging 5G applications? And for IoT specifically, how important is reliability in an IoT environment? These are all questions that will need to be considered and answered in weighing future spectrum policy decisions. So I am proud of the collaborative effort NTIA has established in the late eight, last eight years and the strides we have made in creating and enduring, in creating an enduring spectrum pipeline that is going to support the evolution to 5G. We have set the stage for a new era of substantially increased dynamic spectrum sharing and innovating with our technical and policy tools, NTIA is well positioned to meet the increasing and evolving spectrum demands of federal and non-federal users. So while my time at NTIA is coming to a close in a few weeks, I am confident that we have the structure and team in place to build on our success and ensure that the United States remains a global leader in wireless innovation. Thank you for listening. Great, Larry. Um, you want me to sit down or stand up? Uh, it's up to you. Okay. Uh, maybe sit down. Why don't, why don't we do that? Um, when I look back at your many accomplishments over the past eight years, uh, and, and with the the full information of uh, hindsight, uh, 
and I think about what is the, uh, uh, one of the, the factors that uh, strikes me as the most improbable. If you had asked me eight years ago and told me how technology was going to play out, how policy is going to play out, one thing that, that NTI has done uh, has been to, um, to get other federal agencies to relinquish spectrum. Uh, not just little bands, but lots of spectrum. Uh, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that, uh, how you approach that, uh, and um, what I assume were some very difficult conversations in other parts of the government? I, I, I think that's something of a misconception. People have the idea that federal agencies dig in and are unwilling to cooperate in these areas. Uh, of course, it helps that you have a president issuing a, a directive to the agencies in terms of the original 500 megahertz order. But um, my experience with the federal agencies has been that they, they respect the needs. Um, they want to make sure that their needs are addressed. And I do think that um, in the last eight years, NTI has done a good job at making sure that the agency needs are brought into the discussions. Um, and I think they respect um, sound, neutral, and fact-based analysis, which again is something we have focused on in the last eight years. And I think in that sort of an environment um, where we know all the issues are going to be exposed and evaluated and where decisions are going to be made based on the facts, I have found the federal agencies to be uh, very cooperative partners in this effort. Said like a true diplomat. But, uh, <laughs> that's wonderful. In your summary, the five points, one that really jumped out at me was you're talking about the need for additional uh, technical standards, and you particularly focused on receiver standards. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, well, this, this emerged um, in, in, in one or two very large matters in the last eight years where uh, the, the fact that we aren't looking at the impact receivers are having um, was perhaps restricting what would otherwise be authorized licensed uses by the people who had uh, the spectrum assigned to them. And I just think that um, given the fact that we are having to put more services in next to each other, we're having to put uh, disparate services in adjacent bands to each other, um, that at some point we're going to have to confront this question of making sure that receivers aren't causing spillover into bands where they don't have any legal or author, authorized right to be uh, as a way to uh, make sure that we can continue to take full advantage of the spectrum we have available to us. In your talk, you spoke a bit about the Spectrum Relocation Fund and what a great success that was. Um, and you also suggested that uh, market incentives probably don't work too well with federal agencies to encourage them to uh, uh, forego use of spectrum. Um, one of the limitations, of course, of the Spectrum Relocation Fund is it, it captures what I would call uh, actual transactional costs that uh, an agency might incur, but it, it doesn't really capture the opportunity costs that uh, the agency using Spectrum maybe not as efficiently as it, it might otherwise. Um, yeah, is the, the future so bleak in terms of getting uh, government agencies to 
take into account market incentives? Is, is that future all that bleak? Or is, is there any ray of hope, uh, given the successes that you actually have had uh, with, with agencies and uh, 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 developing the, the sharing plan of the past eight well, I think you have to, and what we've been trying to do for the last couple of years at NTIA, and I don't know when we'll get the work completed, was really try to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in federal agencies that are trying to make these decisions about how Spectrum's used. I mean, first off, Spectrum for them is just a tool to perform a mission. So their mission is to keep soldiers safe on the battlefield, or their mission is to um, determine what the weather is going to be tomorrow or next week. So for them, Spectrum's just a tool. So what's important to them is that they perform their mission, and in these life or death situations, that they perform the mission in a way to um, you know, meet the critical needs that they have. Having said that, I think agencies generally like to know that they're using the most modern and the best technologies. They're, they're certainly amenable to um, upgrades, but then you're up against the budget challenges that they have of are they going to be given the resources to make that kind of upgrade. And that's balanced against the fact that when you're performing a mission, there's always going to be a tendency to rely on what's tested and tried out. As a, so there isn't a lot of reward for being experimental, particularly when you're talking about protecting lives and protecting property. So the question, I do think the Spectrum Relocation Fund, by perhaps providing the resources that could allow for the kinds of upgrades agencies would have a natural tendency to make, offers us the best long-term hope uh, in the future. Some of these other ideas like giving agencies some ownership interest in Spectrum to allow them to, in effect, get paid to give up Spectrum. I just don't see them fundamentally dealing with the Spectrum choices when they're making them in the context of performing a mission. Plus, they will lead to perverse results in the sense that today, federal agencies have no um, ownership or proprietary interest in the Spectrum they use. They are assigned a right to use it, which can be taken away from them when they're no longer using it. If all of a sudden you created a property right in the agency, first off, it might lead to hoarding, which doesn't exist today, because they now have an incentive to gather as much spectrum as they could in order to be paid off for it in the future. Um, but, it, but it doesn't get at the fundamental issue, which is making sure that they are using the most modern technology they can and have the resources to upgrade when that's available to them. That's great. I could go on all afternoon asking questions, but that would not be fair. Let me open it up to the audience for questions. Uh, we will have a microphone going around the room, and uh, please identify yourself uh, before asking the question. I have a show of hands for questions. Uh, the gentleman here. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you, Larry, for your wonderful uh, presentation. Uh, John Feroldi from Charter Communications. Um, I have a question about spectrum utilization efficiency. And uh, what have you looked at the upper layer protocols, such as uh, IPv6 versus IPv4, in terms of improving efficiency usage as we go to Internet of Things, improving the utilization of the, the available spectrum? Um, so that's a question for the panel. <laughs> We're all in favor of, of greater utilization of IPv6 
frankly, I wasn't aware of the spectrum implications of that, but we absolutely, just because of the internet numbering resources, we need greater adoption of IPv6. Gentleman here in blue. Uh, hi, uh, Doug Brake with uh, ITIF. Uh, yeah, thanks again, Mr. Trickling. That was a great, uh, great speech. Um, I, was, I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on your thinking on the enforcement issue. Do you see that uh, as how significant of a problem do you think that is? Uh, do you see uh, sort of technical solutions to enforcement as the solution, or is it, are more policy uh, issues needed, or just, uh, more resources for the enforcement bureau? Just well, curious on your thoughts. I mean, I think the the threshold question, which is probably prevented. Um, meeting this need, which has been identified for years. I mean, I think Dale Hatfield, when he was a teenager, was talking about the need for stronger enforcement um, in this area. Part of it is the what has been up till now, the difficulty in agreeing on what actually is harmful interference that would justify an enforcement action. So um, that's something that's got to be wrestled with and dealt with as kind of a precursor or as, as a necessary condition to do this. Um, we talked about the receivers issue. Again, that eventually leads to um, uh, being implicated in an enforcement uh, issue. But I think it's just become clear that putting more and more systems next to each other, um, that we've got to have a process by which if you have rights of use in a particular band that you know that they will be protected and guaranteed to you. So we've now got to really bite the bullet and find a way to, to develop a, an effective enforcement mechanism. And I think for the details, again, that's a great question for the next panel. I don't want to take all their thunder. Great. Uh, next question. Uh, gentleman in the back. Uh, Henry Hetker. I've uh, more or less have evaluated like treasury records, 100 years old, and you look at all their important communications, and the most important ones are always in code. And recently, like this morning, we hear that the Joint Chiefs emails have wound up at some university out west, 30,000 emails, and they opened a few emails, and they couldn't believe what was in them. It's all in plain English. And the presence is going to be a reprisal for this uh, to the Russian hackers they think are responsible for it. And I, I wondered, uh, is there any way to improve uh, coded communication for certain emails? A lot of it seems harmless enough. Uh, how are you going to know how to crack it? But if they do crack it, they can see it. But maybe they can crack the code, but it gives them another thing to worry about. Isn't there a way for the most uh, modern communication methods to have a, a rotating system of codes? Uh, that only a few people would be able to handle and reduce uh, the problem that apparently exists. Um, you're into an area which Harold's going to have a totally separate program on in a few weeks, right, Harold? <laughs> um, the, sure. whole, the, the whole issue of cybersecurity okay. and encryption and the, and the balancing of factors on that is, is a huge, huge set of issues. Um, and uh, how every institution, not just the federal government, but every business. We read yesterday of the billion accounts that got hacked at Yahoo. Um, and so it's not just a question of encrypting communications. That's an important piece of this. But end to end, you've got questions of uh, data you know, being kept in storage facilities, data 
as it's kept in the devices that you're using, data as it's being transmitted, and all of these present very significant cybersecurity challenges for all of us, not just the government. Um, and I think you may have seen that the, the President's Commission on Cybersecurity issued a set of recommendations a week or two ago. Um, there have been other parties that have looked at these issues. There will be a full plate, I think, for the next administration in terms of working its way through these issues and determining the right responses to all of these. Uh, but it's a very, very large and complicated issue. If I may just follow up on that a bit, and, and this goes to the role of NTIA within the federal government. Uh, do agencies ever come to NTIA and ask for advice on best practices uh, on, on really on anything? Is, is that a role that NTIA performs or uh, does the coordinating federal users uh, not get into that sort of thing? Well, I think you have other parts of the federal government, such as the federal chief information officer, federal chief technology officer. So there may be other places that people would go for that. Um, we're there in terms of policy issues. Um, one of the things we have done in terms of people coming to us or in terms of work we've done is um, over the, and I mentioned this in the opening remarks, but over the last several years, we've been running uh, these multi-stakeholder processes to develop codes of conduct and best practices in some of these nascent fields where it's way too early to be thinking about regulation or legislation, uh, but we're trying to get footholds uh, such as we did on, on best practices related to drone privacy. Um, you know, brought all stakeholders together, invited all stakeholders to participate um, to help develop kind of the first cut of how um, people selling drones and people with uh, operating drones ought to respect privacy of, of citizens. Um, and so I think uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last several years in privacy, uh, cybersecurity, and another area. Yesterday we just released uh, the output of a separate multi-stakeholder process on uh, the issue of um, how um, software and hardware manufacturers can work better with the community of people who go out and find vulnerabilities in software, vulnerabilities in devices, um, to try to bring them together so that they're working in a more cooperative fashion. Again, th three very important uh, pieces of work that were just released yesterday in that area. So, so we've put a lot of emphasis on uh, bringing stakeholders together to see if we can advance some of these policy areas where in the absence of that, probably nothing would be happening because the, the issues are just too new, too undefined to lead to a satisfactory regulatory or legislative solution. Uh, lady in the back. Hi, thank you. I'm Katie McAuliffe. I'm with uh, Digital Liberty and Americans for Tax Reform. And I just wanted to um, kind of go back and see if you could elaborate a little bit more on your skepticism of market-based incentives for agencies and spectrum. Um, I'm sort of, I mean, one of the ideas that's kicked around is putting a, a market value on the spectrum and having that accounted for in budgets or um, worked on in that way. And that seems like that would be a um, more of a market-based incentive for agencies. What are your, um, your thoughts on that? Well, the, the problem is that the federal agency is performing a mission. So how are you going to put a market value on the mission they're performing? And then how are you going to, if, if that, again, and it becomes a particular issue when you are looking at 
the missions to protect human life and protect property where there will be a natural re reluctance to take a lot of risk in terms of bringing in new systems or new technologies before they've really been tested and uh, thoroughly understood. And so how do you overcome that reluctance when uh, if you know there's a product that works and uses a particular band of spectrum, <clears throat> I think these agencies have every incentive to continue to use a system like that and not just say, well, you know what, with the spectrum values becoming greater to commercial people, so we should abandon this system and go buy something new in some other band. Um, you know, the, the people making these decisions are being made, are, are being paid to protect human life, protect property, they're not being paid to make more spectrum available to the commercial sector. So you've got to get into their process and understand their decision making if you're really going to influence them and give them a reason to um, uh, use a different approach or different technology than perhaps they were using before. Let's do one more question. I will take the last question then. Um, and this is on um, international coordination for 5G. Um, 5G is I think evolving it's a, technology. That's a question for the next panel. Uh, okay, all right. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask about because uh, it's an evolving technology. And as usual, the US is uh, technologically one of the leaders in this area. Just, uh, but these technologies ultimately have global standards and uh, any comments you can share with us about uh, about the international coordination process? Well, I'll make a general one, but as it relates to spectrum use, it really would be better put to the panel. Um, I think with 5G generally, we're already starting to see some um, difference in approach between you know the United States and, and perhaps other countries, particularly some countries in Europe. I think um, there's a viewpoint held among some European countries that they need to get out and get these standards done right now um, because that will then encourage the deployment of the technologies. I think the viewpoint from in the US among most of the US companies is, hey, not so fast we really ought to have an opportunity for more experimentation, more trial, um, and really give people a chance to explore how to use these technologies before we lock into standards that might actually stunt innovation and, and chill growth. So um, it'll be interesting to watch how that debate unfolds as, in terms of uh, um, these this difference in views that exist now. I think eventually everybody acknowledges we want to have standards in this space. It's a question of is now the right time and, and, and what's the trajectory by which you get to them. And with that, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, uh, I think we're uh, going to go straight to our next panel. Uh, if I could have the panelists come up. We have a distinguished panel of experts to uh, discuss both uh, Administrator Strickling's comments today as well as uh, discuss the future of 5G. Uh, and let me just briefly introduce our panelists today. Uh, on my far left, uh, on your right, is John Wilkins, Chief of the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, during his tenure, the Bureau's activities have focused on a range of 5G deployment activities, including the development of commercial licensing rules 
for the world's first use of millimeter wave spectrum for terrestrial mobile services in close engagement with industry and local government stakeholders on small cell infrastructure sightings. Uh, in the middle, we have Paige Atkins, the Associate Administrator, Office of Spectrum Management, NTIA. Uh, uh, Paige leads the spectrum management efforts for the executive branch agencies and manages engineering, frequency assignment and certification, national and international spectrum policy, and strategic planning functions. Uh, and Fred Campbell is the Director of Technology uh, a senior policy advisor with the with Wireless 2020 and an adjunct professor in the space cyber and telecommunications law program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Uh, he was he served as chief of the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau at the FCC uh, in the mid 2000s, and uh, he has served in the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army as an Arabic linguist. Very impressive. Uh, I would like to ask each of you to give your uh, thoughts and reactions to, uh, to Larry's talk. Uh, I am going to go, let's, let's start with Fred and then John and then Paige, if we can go in that order. Fred, do you want to go first? Sure, thank you, and thanks for having us uh, at, at this event, Hudson Institute. It's a really nice new facility, so I guess I'll... I'll uh, echo Mr. Strickling's thoughts on that. You know, the one thing that stuck out to me um, was the, the answer that Mr. Strickling gave to, the, to one of the questions, that being yeah, incentives for agencies. And he, he made the point that, well, how can you put a value on their missions? Uh, and my first thought to that was that, that government does that on a routine basis in, in virtually all areas not involving spectrum. So you take real property, uh, military facilities, they need land. Uh, uh, you know, the FCC uh, leases its building from a commercial entity. So those things have prices put on them. And it, you know, a decision was made back in the 30s that Spectrum wasn't going to be owned by anyone but the U.S. government. Uh, and in fact, that's also largely true of land west of the Mississippi for whatever reason. Uh, but uh, to posit something truly uh, different than what we have now, it, it could be the opposite. It could be that there is no federally allocated Spectrum per se. It's all... Uh, commercial, and if an agency's mission requires access to spectrum, they lease or buy it the same way they do with real property. Uh, now, I, I'm, by the way, not suggesting that that's going to happen anytime soon, if nothing else, because there are decades of institutional history around this, and it's not done that way now. I'm just saying, as a matter of economics, I don't see any reason why it couldn't work uh, in the in the abstract, I, again, the, the sort of historical structure in place makes that a little difficult to transition to at this point. But spectrum rights, like any other right uh, that can be negotiated, can have a value put on them. John? Well, thank, I'll echo the thanks, Harold, the Hudson Institute for having us, uh, having us here. It's a really important topic uh, for the FCC for the last eight years, and it's going to be going forward. I actually had three, three reactions to, 
to what Larry went through. I did just want to echo, he talked about what's happened over the last eight years on, on Spectrum. Uh, and, it, and it is a pretty impressive uh, record just on the numbers. So Larry mentioned the 245 megahertz cleared and then in 2017, we will have a successful conclusion of the, of the broadcast auction. It'll bring us over 300 megahertz. Put that in context, just that is about a 50% increase over the total amount of spectrum made available for commercial mobile data uses, or even before there was such a thing as mobile data for commercial mobile uses over the last 20 years. So that's a big increase. And that's before we talk about um, spectrum frontiers and millimeter wave, which in some ways is apples to oranges, but Larry did give the number. Just the first rounds of spectrum frontiers work we did this past summer was 11 gigahertz. And so you can do the math. That's hundreds of percent greater than what's been done so far. So it really is, really is striking. We do think it's a big deal. And when you, you, know, you talk to folks that have been in the commission for a long time and worked on these issues, it's striking um, how, how, how big of a change and how much has been done there. I'll also echo what Larry said about the goalposts are moving. So he mentioned in the context of Mobile Now and, and Congress adding even additional uh, megahertz. Um, I think I would add to that the goalpost is also moving in terms of the needs, sort of what, what, what collectively industry needs, um, the demands of the networks. And I would add one other element, which is even the uncertainty as to what the commercial deployment models will be. Right, so obviously the traditional large nationwide carriers that build the cellular networks will be doing a ton in this space, but I think they'd be the first to say, you know, will, will T-Mobile's network be in its current form exactly the same model to serve Internet of Things applications for the automotive sector? I don't think anybody really knows. This idea that the goalposts also have to include more flexibility for innovation in the, in the way the networks are actually built and used to capture the value of these technology is also part of that moving goalpost. So that then, I, to the second thing I wanna just comment on, Larry talked a lot about sharing and that's been a big theme. I think that there's the starting point, which is there's just less and less truly greenfield cleared spectrum that you could realistically say, yeah, we're gonna clear that band entirely and just make it available. So there's that reality of it's hard to keep doing traditional full spectrum clearing. Um, but Again, point back to the last two decades. I think it really is true that the U.S., in, in terms of public policy for spectrum, has really been innovative and really led the world. And you go back 20 years ago, things like spectrum auctions or unlicensed spectrum, when they were introduced, were viewed as, what are you guys doing? In fact, I, I did a panel last week on 5G, and there was a representative from a Scandinavian country that they're still doing beauty contests to award spectrum rights. And in this country, of course, auctions now are that. Whatever else you think about this, auctions is a market efficient way to do this is sort of sacrosanct. I think if we look ahead, there are these new tools. And sharing, I think, is the biggest category of them. So sharing and the way that, frankly, the networks now, because they're much more intelligent and you can embed software capabilities into the network that can actually help manage sharing, uh, just as one example. I think there'll be lots of debates about the details and the details will matter, but I think 10 years from now, we'll look, we'll look back and the idea of these sharing techniques that now are so controversial or at least highly debated will be viewed as about as sacrosanct as we view auctions today. And, and maintaining that openness to innovation on the policy side to match what clearly is massive innovation on the industry side is important. By the way, the other big tool besides sharing, you know, incentive auctions, we've talked about it so much in the 
current 600 megahertz broadcast context. But, but statutory authority for incentive auctions is broader than just 600 megahertz. So that's another interesting question. What other bands of spectrum, and this would be more commercial to commercial, not commercial to federal, as, as, you know, as Fred was commenting on, but where else can incentive auctions be a good tool? You know, so the FCC is, has, has a lot of momentum that, by the way, is only really the result of the downstream of what NTIA and the administration has done to, to help have federal spectrum be more available for us to then work with getting a commercial use possible. And how will those new tools continue to develop going forward? And then third point, federal collaboration. Again, Larry talked about it a lot. And Paige, sitting to my right here, has been living this uh, at the NTIA, too. I think it's impossible to understate how effective and how important that true federal collaboration has been on these issues. Um, my reference point, again, the Spectrum Frontiers order that the FCC came out with this past summer was all about federal collaboration and coordination. And the key was it happened quickly. So if any of you have heard, whether it's Chairman Wheeler or any of the other commissioners at the FCC right now, the goal has been for the US to lead the world in making millimeter wave spectrum available. Um, it actually goes, the last question that Harold asked uh, Larry about other parts of the world, they're focusing on standards and that's the way to get going. The US policy is, no, we're gonna make spectrum available as few technical rules as possible and industry go out and figure it out. But the key to that is you gotta actually make the spectrum available. When we made a couple of those high frequency bands available this past summer, 28 gigahertz, 37, 39, 64, but just focusing on 28, we are the first in the world to do that. And I think FCC and others in the administration that then interacted with international counterparties, other parts of the world were stunned at how quickly we actually got that done. And how other countries then set their own policies will be evolving, but I think we have clearly set a huge forward momentum. And the strategy is we want the US to be first for deployment because we think that actually is huge economic advantages for the US. But that speed was only possible because of that federal collaboration that really has been built. And those of you that have ever done these issues, there was a lot of um, Department of Defense spectrum involved there. The genuine collaboration with which DOD, all because of the coordination NTIA did, that let us do that quickly, really was extraordinary. And, and it'd be, it's just really important going forward that continue. So first, even though Larry will only be my boss for another few weeks, I want to say publicly that I wholeheartedly agree with everything he said. <laughs> and I'll just elaborate on a couple of points. As, as Larry said, there are few easy choices when we're balancing the vital government missions against commercial demand. But the whole point here is to look at it and understand what those requirements are and to uh, create a balanced approach to how we satisfy both. And this fundamental shift that Larry talked about to spectrum sharing is a key component to that because traditionally we've always thought of this as a zero-sum game. Somebody won and somebody lost. But we don't have that choice anymore. So the sharing mechanism, when it's appropriate, allows us to create a win-win scenario and satisfy the requirements and optimize our use of this precious resource. Um, I will echo that we have to uh, remain agile because we don't know what's next. And I'll, I'll use an example uh, that technology and business models can change dramatically. And as an example, within the last four years since the PCAS report was, was published, the report cited the Internet of Things as a novel wireless market. 
and now it's part of our daily vernacular. Uh, and at that time, 5G was still evolving and wasn't even mentioned in the PCAST report. That was four years ago. So you can see how quickly and dramatically things can change in a very short period of time. Uh, I wanted to um, add a little bit on enforcement. When I talk enforcement, I, I talk to it in quotes. So I don't tend to think of it in its formal and legal sense, uh, which is typically reactive. Something happens, and we need to take action to fix it. So in the future, I think we need to think of enforcement in a much broader context. And as we develop these new and innovative sharing approaches, we need to figure out how to integrate enforcement capabilities into the technologies, the process, the policies, and the architectures like 5G that we're going to implement. And it's not just where we are today where it's very reactive and static, but we have to move to something that's much more proactive and automated, so preventing the interference from occurring in the first place. So I broaden the definition of enforcement as I talk about it. And that also creates some cyber and privacy concerns that need to be addressed in the process. I want to um, also address a little bit on the incentives, uh, part of whether you can come up with a value like real estate uh, to charge is, is one element. The other element is then what incentive does that drive to a decision maker to do something different? And the way the budgetary process works and the statutory requirements that many of these uh, agencies are under, uh, we aren't convinced that it will actually create the incentive in the long run because of how decisions are made and whether uh, that dollar figure would create influence on that decision maker to make a different decision than they would have otherwise. And we can get into more detail later, but we're peeling that back and we'll be able to better define what that looks like uh, so everyone can better understand the situation. And the, the last thing I'll say really is that we've come a long way. And I have to echo what everybody has said. When you look back at the last eight years, we have made such tremendous progress. And again, collaboration has been key. Uh, collaboration among the agencies, with industry, between NTIA the commission, uh, that has been foundational to, to our success. And it will continue to be even more important as we move forward. So we need to continue to extend and strengthen that collaboration as we uh, go into the next four or eight years, depending on what the case may be. And I am convinced, as Larry articulated, that we've got the right team, the right foundation in place to be successful. Uh, thank you. I, I do want to mention that uh, we extend a, a great welcome to our C-SPAN audience. And uh, our audience can submit questions via Twitter to at Hudson events. Uh, and we'll try to get those questions up here as well. Next question I want to ask is, um, uh, John mentioned that uh, uh, the US has a, and I think entirely appropriately, sort of a hands-off approach towards uh, setting standards at this point. Uh, but uh, there are lots of folks in industry, whether in Silicon Valley or 
wireless carriers or elsewhere that are working on uh, 5G technologies for the future. And uh, in an ideal world, they wouldn't need to have to come back to Washington for anything. They could just go off and develop these technologies and everything would be in place. I assume that's not the case. I assume that, in fact, uh, the, uh, some of these new technologies will require uh, some coordination and some special dispensations from, uh, from the federal government. Whether that's uh, in terms of uh, specific standards for uh, uh, use of spectrum in various bands, whether it's enforcement issues, whether it's receiver issues that Larry discussed, whether it's uh, international issues. Uh, I was wondering if each of you could just uh, take a few moments to describe what you see as the critical next steps for the development of 5G from sort of a Washington perspective. That is, uh, what is it that, that the, the new technologists are likely or have come to Washington asking for some help with? Fred, do you want to start it off? Um, I think that's right. I think there will be uh, questions brought to Washington. Uh, I think a good starting point is the high frequency spectrum that John alluded to. That's a critical component. And then the question becomes sort of how does that, uh, can we harmonize that internationally? You know, uh, John talked about the fact that the U.S. is going first, but that also involves trade-offs. If you go first, sometimes you don't, uh, the rest of the world goes a different direction if you don't do it at the same time. That's always been a challenge with Spectrum. Uh, but that has economic consequences. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be nice if it could be harmonized. And there's also this question that the U.S. has never really resolved about... Uh, licensed, hybrid, licensed, unlicensed, and unlicensed. And what do I mean by that? Uh, we've kind of got three different spectrum systems now, in my view. And there's sort of what you might think of as the traditional licensed command and control, some might call it. And there is what I, you might call traditional unlicensed, which is a, a very limited set of technical standards, and that's it. And then you have sort of this new hybrid approach like we have at the 3.5 gigahertz or 3.6 internationally uh, band where you have a database and some sort of form of, of centralized control. So one question for 5G is, you know, are, are we, uh, the, is the United States going to settle on uh, a model for how they want to handle the spectrum in the 5G environment? Are uh, they going to just do it on a, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that experimental basis, which is, I think, is kind of how the FCC sort of has gone so far in their, you know, what they call their spectrum frontiers proceeding. Uh, and by a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I mean, even when I, you know, it's been this way for a very long time at the agency, the FCC's never really articulated a decisional basis for deciding how much spectrum might go into a particular model. Uh, it's just sort of hashed out, uh, I guess, uh, through negotiation uh, with, you know, without any real you know, stringent quantitative justification for the decision. So will there be a, a quantitative justification? 
for the decision made in that respect. And then the last thought I would leave you with is, how do those decisions play out with you know, the FCC's public interest standard? What do I mean by that? So it's interesting to me that the way it works today, if you have licensed spectrum, you're subject to a whole host of additional FCC obligations like merger reviews and the like because you have licensed spectrum. If you use unlicensed spectrum but use it not as an individual consumer but on a very commercialized basis and even potentially, potentially on a competitive basis with other licensees, you don't have any of those obligations. And so when, do, when does the question of spectrum allocation slash you know, uh, service rules uh, move beyond just a question of you know, which model do we like for spectrum purposes and actually play into the larger debate about the FCC's role and how it administers its regulations? Because frankly, right now, the, that, that dichotomy uh, you know, arguably is nonsensical. John? Um, two things. First, I think on the, on the core FCC side, there is incredible momentum behind um, minimizing the touch point, and to your, to your way you phrased it, minimize the touch points between industry figuring out how best to use the technology and, and the FCC. There is, though, the question of just making the licenses available. So the most recent Spectrum Frontiers actually has, I mean, you, you get into the technicalities of the commission's licensing approach, but we have to do some work on the licenses themselves. More importantly, they have to be auctioned. Like, what's, what is the plan for auctioning what we have available? And that's got to just be decided. I think everyone agrees it should go as quickly as possible, but that's going to be the, the last big step. I, I, perhaps in, in good Washington tradition, I will also pass the buck to other agencies on, on, on the second part of my answer. Um, in a lot of these new 5G use cases, you really get into these adjacent areas, so automated cars, for example, if that's a 5G future use, and people talk about the low latency value of 5G spectrum millimeter wave being useful for automated vehicles because the car will stop much more quickly when there's low latency. Whatever the FCC does, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration has got to make sure that it's being done in a way that is safe for the operation of those vehicles. And they just put out a, their version of an early rulemaking on a piece of that this week. Drones is even a better example. I think everyone agrees the economic potential value of drones is huge, but boy, the FAA is going to make real sure that before we start letting drones fly commercial payloads over the line of sight, they understand the safety rules of that. Whatever the spectrum are going to do, that's probably the easy part, actually. So I think that's the other piece of this, these new use cases that 5G is rapidly going to get beyond kind of the traditional you know, wireless carriers building mobile services, as huge as that is, 5G is probably bigger and broader than that on adjacent sectors to start introducing other areas of you know, Washington regulation that from a, in those two examples, just a safety perspective probably is necessary. So getting, not having that be a five-year process to figure out some of those rules is probably pretty important. I'll, I'll build on what John was saying. We, we talk about 5G as if it's one thing, and it's, it's not. And depending on who you talk to, it could be uh, many different things to many different folks. And it is really an ecosystem of capabilities that are going to satisfy a very diverse set of requirements, whether it be uh, a, a type of IoT to the very high capacity um, services that we see in the future. 
Uh, so it really is many things combined into a concept at this point in time, in my uh, personal opinion. And part of what we need to do is to continue to better characterize what it is, how it will be deployed, how it's going to be used. And that will help drive, continue to drive the standards development, how it will be shared, the spectrum that it uses, how it will be shared again to help drive what the standards should be internationally to enable the kinds of services, the kinds of sharing, the kinds of security that we envision in the future. So I think a key component is to better characterize what it is and how it will be used, how it will be deployed. And that's an ongoing process now. There are a lot of folks addressing that. And then to ensure that those characteristics and requirements are adequately uh, addressed within the standards community. And then that will help us understand, from a spectrum standpoint, what does that mean in terms of potential demand, the types of spectrum that's needed for the various use cases or applications that it will serve, and help us make more prudent decisions in terms of uh, what spectrum may need to be made available, additional spectrum, or how it will be shared between federal and non-federal users. And I, I would say that um, spectrum is a pillar, but it's only one component. It's an important component. But there are a lot of other issues that need to be addressed for successful 5G deployment, whether it be infrastructure or other issues that um, are critical to the success of 5G. I have lots of other questions. But I'm going to open it up to the audience. Uh, you have uh, extraordinarily knowledgeable experts here on a wide range of issues. And I have a question here from John Peha, please. Uh, John Peha, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, as Fred pointed out, there are different models we could adopt for 5G. And the model you would want would depend on the technology and the application. And Paige Atkins just reminds us there are a lot of possibilities. So we may have standards bodies waiting for regulators to tell us what they need to develop, and regulators waiting for standards bodies to pick models where, who should be driving this process, or how do we, how do we coordinate across all these players? Coordination's a challenge. And, and I, I agree with both panelists earlier that, you know, I do think, you know, the uh, NTIA and federal agencies have gotten much better much more open to collaboration. I, I think I've seen that, you know, we've, we've seen that, uh, not just on panels like this, but I've, I've seen, you know, uh, senior military officials talk about the need to, you know, think about how they can open the spectrum up for any, even for their own reasons that it's good for them. Uh, there's not much of an answer. I guess I would say, yeah, there's gotta be collaboration and, and policymakers should, uh, if they're not now, you know, be more involved potentially in some of these discussions earlier on and not be necessarily as passive. There's trade-offs with that too and risks of looking like uh, the government's getting too, too involved in the standards making process. I'd have to give that more thought as to how you might do that coordination in a way that's, uh, that's you know, I guess the CSMAC's an example. Advisory committees are one way to do it. They're not as international though because you know the standards bodies, three GPP and the like. It's it, these are 
and IEEE, these are international bodies. So it's, it's a difficult question. I, I think collaboration is good. How to do it harder. I could give a slightly different answer. I think competition is good. I think it's great to have competition of standards. The Europeans are very, they gravitate towards a, a, a single answer. And I think the US market tends to try different standards. Uh, that, that's happened with every uh, technology standard for, for wireless services. If it were up to the Europeans, we would have had started with GSM and ended with GSM. Uh, you go back 25 years ago on uh, uh, advanced television standards. And again, uh, say the Japanese had a very advanced, uh, uh, but it wasn't a digital standard. And, and so um, I, I, I think there's a lot of value in having uh, competition of, of standards. At some point, there does have to be coordination to have some sort of mass market attraction. And, uh, but I, I, I do think the U.S. has been uh, more on the side of angels than not on, on delaying uh, standards until you're, you're further along the process. But I, I don't know if you all have a different view. I, 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 I mean, I'm biased because we've been doing this from the U.S. policy side, but I think the, you know, the approach of focus on making the, the, the terms of access commercial use of the spectrum and you know, to Fred's point, there's a different versions of that, but at least clarify what it is. That then will create the incentives for, frankly, the, you know, the commercial players who have got, maybe they got different versions of what they think is gonna work. They will differ on the technical details, but when they know that at least they got spectrum to use, I think what we've seen is that then starts to generate the real engagement in the standards bodies. The standards bodies then are pretty good forums for, you, know, you have different economic interests that maybe battle a little bit, but it is all grounded in technical reality. <laughs> and so I think even very recently, you know, this 3.5 ban we've talked about a lot, I think what we've seen is, so the FCC at least clarified what the rules were gonna be for using that spectrum. I think we've then seen a lot more activity on clarifying three standards in 3.5 downstream of that. So I think that that's the US approach, and I would agree with Harold. I think we sort of long ago in the US agreed that we don't want too much collaboration involving government on, you know, here's what the standards really should be. And it's just better to let the market fight out a bit and have the policy support that. And I think it's an iterative approach and we learn as we go. And so it's not one absolutely driving the other, it's learning and adjusting to optimize 5G or whatever the technology and, and business market. Can I clarify my answer? Absolutely. I, to be clear, I actually, wholeheartedly agree with all the panelists and, and Harold to the extent they're, I'm not a fan of, of government mandated standards, which was a difference between the US and Europe and, and um, 2G for, ex, for example. But I think more of what I was, I think, and what I understood John's question to be, one thing that seems to be somewhat of a consensus, although I agree with you, 5G is very in flux, is, is that it, to the extent it's about having multi-purpose networks that can handle verticals, uh, and maybe I'm getting too complex. I expected to have multiple, potentially multiple air interfaces and the like, and then the question becomes do you, some of which may have different spectrum needs potentially, or at least different interference concerns, and especially with the federal government and the like. And so I understood John's question to be how do you resolve all those issues? And uh, 
you know, I generally prefer market-based approaches wherever possible, but, but given the potential complexity, some interaction as things develop seems like it might be a good idea. But that definitely wasn't advocating for a, a, an adopted, uh, you know, approach, if you will. I think we were answering different parts of John's question, but Paige. Can I just add one thing? I think um, 5G gives us an amazing opportunity to do things right from the start in many areas. It includes looking at enforcement and what we may need to integrate into the standards in collaboration, obviously, with an industry that would make sense, um, and how we can integrate, again, sharing mechanisms into the standard that allow us to use it in a much more efficient and effective way, federal and non-federal. So I think it gives us an opportunity to inject things that we know we need in the future that we may not have known as we were developing other standards along the way. Next question. Uh, gentleman Blue here. Uh, thank you, Dave Rabinowitz. I was uh, wondering, as frequencies get higher, the effective usable range gets a lot shorter. And I'm wondering if it's going to be feasible uh, technically, economically, and especially uh, administratively to license exclusive spectrum use over very small areas. For example, a farmer wants exclusive use to do precision farming over his farm only. Is that going to be something he, he'd be able to do and afford and be able to get, not have to hire a bunch of people to go through the paperwork? Okay, it's a great, great question. So first, let me, I'm going to just parse one part of it. Absolutely, the propagation distances are much shorter. The, the, the cell size, for lack of a better term, will be much smaller. And that's a different question than how big the license could be. So you certainly could have a bigger license, and a given commercial owner could build a very dense. But you know, the, the question you're raising actually is one that is, it's been teed up as questions in some FCC proceedings. And, and in a way, it gets to the question of, let me, let me change your analogy or your example just slightly. Let's say it's, um, it's the, about the interior space of a commercial building where you may have a broad commercial owner that ho holds a geographic license that includes a bunch of buildings, but because at, at 20 gigahertz, you're not going through the building wall <laughs> no matter how hard you try. So in a way, you have this interesting inside the building. Whoever owns the license, it's sort of fallow because you can't really get in there unless you work with the building owner to site your facilities in there. So what's the policy mechanisms to do that efficiently? I think we're still struggling with it. But I, th I think it's a good example of as the technology improves, we use more and more spectrum in different ways. This need for kind of more creative approaches is important. And if, and if in this scenario, all you did was say, well, traditional license, there's one, one entity owns all of an area, you probably do have some inefficiencies because even if that owner wanted it inside, even if the provider wanted to, just the pure... The building owner might be the third party. How do you get rights to go through the building? How do you manage that? I mean, it, it's, been, it's been teed up. Don't have an answer, but it's a great, it's a great question. And, and by the way, just a quick side note, that, that same issue of these much smaller propagation distances actually tee up all kinds of other interesting issues about, from a regulatory standpoint, how do we actually make deployment happen, which is a bit of a broader question than just make the spectrum available. So something as simple as local processes used to approve cell towers, right? where you might have one in a five square mile radius. All of a sudden, this is happening right now, and there are folks here who work with industry who talk to the FCC about this a lot lately. That same 
five mile radius, you might have a thousand small cells. And right now the local processes are sort of the same and that doesn't scale. And so these are the kind of things that out there on the front lines of these networks being deployed really are being worked through uh, as we speak. Uh, I, I just provide a little layer on that, which is the model that you posit doesn't really fit within the current spectrum management framework. That's my opinion. So for example, People have posited a, posited a nuisance approach, if you will, based on real property to spectrum management for situations like this. And I would say, well, okay, one difference with real property is you have local zoning and access to local courts. But when I, so when I hear of a nuisance type model and I think of one federal court, if you will, the FCC who has a total of two administrative law judges, I say it just doesn't fit. I don't see how it fits the model. You, 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 and I'd have to go into a lot more detail, but I, I, my initial reaction is you can't do it that way unless you want to rethink how we currently do things on a more fundamental basis. And, and it, largely where we've gotten to where we are today, where I say we kind of have three models, none of which we, do we have a coherent theory to describe and how they fit and work together is because we have done things layer by layer and accretion by accretion. But when you start to get that granular, I start to worry that the whole thing is going to break. I would make a couple of further points. One is uh, we actually already have a lot of licenses in the millimeter band, uh, 24 gigahertz, around the 40 gigahertz area, 37 gigahertz. Uh, what the, a lot of what the Spectrum Frontier order does is provide flexibility of use instead of limiting these to just kind of point to point uh, or point to multi-point purposes. Uh, the size of the geographic license is something that has been of interest in all spectrum bands and in every single uh, commission order on uh, allocating new spectrum, the, the issues come up of what's the right size of the spectrum of the geographic area license. And uh, the commission has struggled with this. Um, yeah, everything from nationwide licenses to really fairly small geographic areas, smaller than a city. I don't think there's a single right answer to it. But I also don't, as John said, I don't think it really depends really on the frequency, the, the, the issue of what the right geographic area is, something that the commission has always struggled with and frankly I think will continue to struggle with. Yes. All right, thank you, everyone. Uh, Brent Skorup, uh, Mercatus Center at, at George Mason University. Um, so the, the PCAS report, in it, it says somewhere along the lines that they envision a world of sharing of unlicensed and licensed akin to the TV white spaces proceeding. And that's a little concerning to me. Uh, TV white spaces has not performed as well as people were hoping there were a couple years ago. A device maker predicted they'd have 100 million devices within three years. I think they've sold 100. Um, so, so modeling it that way is concerning. Have, what what lessons have policymakers taken from that? Um, you know, to make sure that 3.5 and these other these other sharing uh, mechanisms work better than TV white spaces. Well. I, I well, so I'll, I'll, I'll take the first shot at it. So I think hey, that there's, you know, there's, there's, various unique, there's various unique aspects of the TV white spaces context 
but I don't know that that sort of disproves the, <laughs> the possibility of having a system like that working effectively. I think probably the biggest change, and again, in the 3.5 context, this is where we're seeing um, the current version of it. Right, the, so the, as the networks continue to evolve, and I mean, basically, it's digi digital signal processing is now fast enough that you can build into the networks, essentially, the sharing uh, implementation. Right? So this is uh, actually uh, Larry mentioned the, you know, the easy example for how 3.5 is, is making more spectrum available is you have military radars used on the coasts. When they're used, you better not interfere with them because it's really important because the aircraft carrier is coming through and don't mess with it. But it's not, it's not a, a, an hourly event or even a daily event. And so other than that one time, it should be available for commercial use. But if you're the Navy, you want to make darn sure that there's no ambiguity about when you need it, it's available. And so a lot of the discussion is about how do you build that into the networks themselves, right? You don't want to rely on a, you know, a database and somebody goes out and queries it. It has to take a bunch of action. It has to be embedded in the networks. So you know, those systems are being worked on. I mean, the commission essentially has an open uh, downstream of that order. The, the Wireless Bureau actually is looking at uh, applications to implement those systems. Um, but, but I think you would just point at broader techn technological uh, trends, right? So, you know, AT&T is very vocal about they view their future network as much more of the network functions are embedded in software, right? And so I, I think that that kind of broad example can be applied to the sharing context of you can implement these rules that ultimately just about more effective time-space coordination of essentially unused spectrum. I mean, white spaces are unused spectrum. The question is how do you best use it? I think in that example it's proved difficult, but I think the general approach is one that, that you know, has to be tried uh, for all the reasons we've talked about. And, and 3.5 is the next, you know, the next shot at it. I'd say, well, I, I think we're talking about our transaction costs. And I, I view it as a triangle, is how I try to describe it to my students, where at the top you have command and control, which at some point there was a consensus that we didn't like anymore, although it's never gone away. In fact, most of it's still command and control. And then there was, again, what I called pure unlicensed, which is you've got a very limited set of technical rules, and then it's supposed to be do whatever you like. Uh, and then you've now got the new hybrid. And the way I describe it is uh, the new hybrid is really just a new flavor of command and control. And it's a return to command and control. And, and my example would be the recent conflicts over Wi-Fi and LTE and the tr you know, traditional pure unlicensed bands. You know, under the rules, doing LTE is perfectly permissible. People do analog video in those bands, which blows out any Wi-Fi in that area, and nobody bats an eye. But now you're going to commercialize it on a big scale with a different technology, and basically the Wi-Fi industry raised its hand and said, no, we can't do that. And what, what is that? It's a form of squatter rights. By the way, I'm a fan of Wi-Fi. I love it. This is not a, I'm just talking policy. And Ironically, so therefore, when I say it's a form of command and control, we have relived history. So prior to the FCC, well, Radio Act 1912, but there was no regulation of the airwaves. And the problem was that there were broadcasters and interference. And the big complaint was there are squatters and squatter rights. And we can't let that happen. And so then we re-regulated it to eliminate the squatter rights through this command and control process. So then unlicensed comes along in the modern form. 
and says technology will eliminate all problems. Well, it turns out only if we all agree to the same standard, and uh, <laughs> which gets you back to the government dictating the standard, which is what they did for broadcast, potentially. No, they haven't done that. It gets you, in other words, we're, we've just done the 1930s all over again with unlicensed, which is why we have these hybrid models. All I would say about it is, yes, the hybrid models are a much more sophisticated and flexible form of command and control, hopefully. Uh, but, you know, we, you're, you, we've just shifted the set of trade-offs to it again. You know, the, the property rights have, I guess, their own trade-offs. Uh, and those who didn't like those say, no, we need to do this other thing. Uh, now we're back to the command and control set of trade-offs, which is government-mandated standards, potentially. I mean, even the 3.5, which I think is very interesting and innovative, but it does contemplate sort of a, uh, you know, the control part of the network will be managed by someone. Will it be one company? Do they then have a monopoly over that? Is it just a form of license? I mean, it gets very complicated very quickly. I mean, I'm a fan of property rights because that just gets sort of the, the lobbying out of it and lets, lets people go figure it out. Uh, and that's the trade-off to command and control is you have to have a government kind of hand involved in everything. Um, our, our last question is, is going to be uh, from uh, someone who's been watching uh, through C-SPAN, uh, Michael Marcus, well-known in the uh, veteran policy community. This is for Paige, but I'll, I'll open it up to all, all three of you. Uh, which is what can NTIA do to facilitate sharing of greenfield spectrum above 95 gigahertz and open it up to the FCCUs? So I think the question generally is, is we've had some focus now on millimeter wave uh, spectrum. Uh, what about uh, even uh, smaller spectrum uh, that uh, uh, technology eventually will get there? And, or are there plans at NTIA to, to uh, try to open some of that up? Um, well, I would say that I, I don't see it any differently than the other bands that we've been discussing. It's a, a matter of collaboration and discussion in terms of how can we share as appropriate. You know, when, when you get higher and higher in frequency, theoretically and technically, it makes it easier to share spectrum among multiple users and, and potentially disparate systems. Uh, so I think it's a matter of discussion, collaboration, and defining a path forward, which we would do in collaboration with the commission, industry, and the agencies. Actually, let me just use that question to make one point that I really meant to make earlier, which is um, we talked a lot about spectrum frontiers, and that was a set of rules done this summer. The FCC now has a Spectrum Frontiers Part 2 that's teed up an even additional number of these millimeter wave bands um, going up pretty high. And so this is, a, these, this is an active, ongoing FCC proceeding. Um, and just as a side note, I mean, this is about as bipartisan as things get, I think, on these issues where everyone is in agreement that we want to make progress on these. And so there'll be a, there's an administration changeover happening, but that one's going to definitely keep going, would be my guess. Um, and so issues like that, are they are teed up you know, in an active commission proceeding, and um, and as Paige said, it just it's actually to the gentleman's question from before. You know, when you get that high, the <laughs> propagation gets real small. And what is the most sensible licensing approach for for a spectrum that whatever anybody says around the ability to use certain directional technologies? You know, you're never going to be going kilometers in distance, 
So what does that mean for the best way to use that? But um, you know, this is open from the FCC. This is not a theoretical question. John, I think you have the last word. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel today. Thank you so much.